be relentless because right now the deals are, they're out there. You just have to work harder at identifying them. And so it's kind of one of those things that think about it like a card, a deck of cards. As you keep flipping the deals, there's going to be some high cards in there. So just keep being relentless with looking at deals. Don't take all the information that's telling you that there are no deals out there. That's not true. Welcome to the Source of Commercial Real Estate Podcast, where we talk to the experts in all asset classes of commercial real estate. Listen so you can grow your wealth, expand your portfolio, improve your mindset, and live an amazing life. And now, your host, Jonathan Hayek. Welcome to the Source of Commercial Real Estate, where we talk to the experts in non-residential commercial real estate so you can grow your business, find a competitive advantage, and use real estate to live the life that you want. I am your host, Jonathan Hayek, and today I am talking with Angel Gonzalez with Keystone Private Capital. Angel, I am thrilled you're here. Really looking forward to this. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great, Jonathan, and I can, can truly appreciate you having us on your show here. Thank you so much for that. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. Angel, why don't we start out with you telling us about your background, how you got started in real estate, and what your work in real estate looks like today. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, my background is I'm actually born and raised actually out of Panama, came in my early teens to the United States, and essentially from there did all my schooling here, primarily with the focus of, of finance and, and as my background. I ended up actually right off the, the bat coming out of college and, and doing the military uh, where I jumped in and got into banking right off the bat. So I was very fortunate. I with Fortune 500 company and, and multiple banks after that for about a decade. And then which is actually kind of where the real estate dream kind of began was because when I was in college, it was something where I got really tired of the landlords and the way that they were doing things. So I decided as soon as I get an opportunity, I'm buying a house and I'm renting it out, and which I did. And then subsequently after that, as my career kind of kept progressing on the single family side, I kept acquiring more and more properties through that route. And then which within, with that was kind of just a side hustle or a side deal that I was kind of working through as I was primarily focusing on really leveraging my banking and finance background, and which led me to executive management for another decade. And so ultimately, it's been very awesome fulfilling, I would like to say, experience going from banking to executive management. And then now my journey the last three years has led me to the commercial side, full-fledged, where now I really focus now on industrial properties and really trying to build out our portfolio that way alongside of kind of helping people along their journeys as well. So, so kind of a, a, a classic trajectory, but I really like to hear that um, you kept your W-2 job while starting in the single family world because that probably made purchasing those single family properties a lot easier, having what I presume was a high paying uh, corporate job. So now transitioning into the industrial space, why the transition from the single family world to industrial? You know, it's funny that you asked that, but it, it actually was by accident. And, I, and, I, and it sounds weird to say it that way, because when I actually was transitioning into commercial real estate, the firm that I partnered with at that time was very much office-based. And one of the things that I found while while they while we were in that, in, while I was part of that organization was the fact that when I looked at the office and, and the lease terms and all these different things and kind of the, the type of tenants and the things, I was like, wait a minute, this feels a lot like in a lot of the ways a multifamily would feel or single family would feel. 
And I, and I kind of wanted just a different avenue because one of the things that came about in one of my kind of tours and things like that, as I was looking at a lot of different properties, someone was like, hey, have you ever looked at how long leases happen to be in industrial? And I was like, no, I don't understand what that means. And so when I, and so they were like, and do you know what triple nets are? And I'm like, okay, no, again, I don't know what that means. And so I went and dug into it. And once I found that there was a, a way to do where I can be actually the person that stewards other businesses for long periods of time that either make something or improve things or things like that, I was like, wait, I can be, I can have like a dual purpose in a sense where I can A, be building out our, our portfolio from an acquisition and, and asset management standpoint, or B, I can actually be part of another thing, which is I can help other businesses really become more efficient and help with the supply chain constraints while actually not being in charge of all of the expenses that happen as I manage these buildings. So it was kind of like one of these things where I was like, wait, wait, I can have the Sunday and, and the sprinkles and the, like, what is going on? <laughs> so it, it was a cool uh, dynamic once I kind of learned more about it. It's hard not to love the industrial asset class once you learn about it. Just, you know, exactly what you hit on, the fact that you can support these other businesses to do big things, um, whether it's manufacturing or supply chain. And me as the landlord, I don't have to be responsible for it. I can just provide the setting, provide the environment for other people to be successful. So Angel, tell me about your buy box or your strike zone. What sorts of properties are you looking for? What's what's an ideal situation for Keystone right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would say that ideal for us is that we really we, we think about things in, in, a, in a world of square footage. And so for us, primarily, we, we have very big qualifiers. So the first part is we really like to land somewhere in that 50,000 square foot space zone and above up to about 150. Somewhere in that in that zone is, is we find that we can play uh, high enough where it's, it kind of takes away just the entry level and, and low enough where I'm not dealing with just institutional people all the time and, and whales that are going to take down my bit, my deals. And then the other thing, too, we look for is that is absolutely crucial, right? The first part is location and, and, and proximity to highways, because ultimately, when it comes to industrial, you, you really need that, that ability to be able to move very efficiently. And then the other thing that we look at as well is, okay, does it also provide an opportunity for storage, either indoor or outdoor? And so that's one of the things that we're seeing, especially with a lot of companies that they're, they're starting to basically be bursting at the seams. And they need that additional storage space. And a lot of that can come in the way of yard or, or different things. And so that's something else is, can we actually provide that? And I, and I will say that ultimately, outside of basically looking at size and, and looking at proximity things, it's really that, that, that sweet zone, which we like to play in, which is close to that 7 million to 25 million range. We find that to be a really good advantageous from a standpoint of getting financing if need be but also being able to really see some good wins for our investors as we're looking at these properties. So in the 50,000 to 150,000 square foot space, are these single tenant or multi-tenant properties, or does it not matter? We, we prefer, and I know this kind of goes different ways, but we prefer the multi-tenant situation just because from us, we, we feel like we like to try to de-risk our, our portfolio as best as we can. And we feel like by leveraging multiple tenants, in order to be in these spaces, it just makes it more advantageous for us. And also when it comes to some of the capital expenditures that these tenants take on, just for as an example, if someone wants to take on doing a roof, if you actually break that up over multiple tenants, it's it's more palatable than saying, here's 
here's your roof bill, go forth, my friend. You know, so so I just think that that's one of the things that we find is that the multi-tenant is, is really a preferred for us. And are there certain markets you're interested in? Are you looking nationwide? Where What spots are you looking at? Yeah, for, for us, I would say that the, the most important is, is where the, the uh, that we would prefer is, okay, where are things coming into the country from? So for us, we see that the coming out of Mexico is a huge deal for us. So we really focus on that, those arteries or corridors, as you would say. So you can kind of see us play anywhere from, you know, Mexico all the way up to Wyoming. We also love going over to up to about Arizona, Texas, just because that opens up more of the country. But ultimately for us, it's really about where are the entry points and then where are the ports that we really can have the maximum amount of impact. I keep hearing about uh, the onshoring to Mexico. And I know Tesla is building a large, I don't know, factory or complex, I think in Guadalajara, something like that. And just keep hearing about the increased importance that Mexico is going to play to our manufacturing and our supply chain over the next decade or so. And, but there's a lot that has to happen in terms of, you know, if building happens around Mexico city, how is stuff going to get from Mexico city up to the U S and, and then once it does cross the border, where is stuff going to go? It seems like the consensus right now is we're simply not prepared for the potential onshoring that's going to happen. That's one of the advantages and upsides of the industrial asset class. Did you have any any more thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head when it comes to what the next decade could look like. I think that one of the things that if, if people are not familiar with the industrial side of things is that the, the U.S. government has actually made it a really big part of what their initiatives will be over the next decade with regards to onshoring and reshoring the things in our in our country. And so what that looks like is that there is going to be a play where there's a belief that the more we can take from overseas, bring it right to our backyard, we will have a lot more control, not only from a supply chain standpoint, but from a national security standpoint. And when you look at the overall scheme or the grand picture of everything, I really do believe that the infrastructure will primarily be focused around our backyard, which is Mexico, and so that's one of the biggest players. And so I, I do know that not only does the government have a big push and initiative, it's only going to make more sense long term to really shore up this infrastructure because of the massive impact that will with regards to and also expense. Right. I mean, when things are right here, you can just move it faster. It's going to say hopefully on, on fuel and all these other things. So there's other byproducts of making sure that we really kind of have a, a good energy around all these things that are happening. Tell me about Keystone's business plan. Are you looking for stabilized assets for long-term holds? Are you looking for value-add opportunities? What's your business plan? You know, for, for us primarily, we're, we really do like that value-add component to it, if possible, because we really like to try to target things that we can have more value growth and creation for not our, only our investors, but really trying to maximize the impact that we can have in these communities, especially as things have other become more obsolete or need to be revamped and things like that. We want to be part of that, that, that initiative. The stabilize, we like to stabilize them. And then we, we do for our portfolio and our business model is most things that we hold are going to be more towards that five to 15 year term, where in other spaces, things can be as close, you know, one to three year to five year. We really look like if we really want to be impactful, that five to 10 year zone is, is even better for us, especially in the industrial space. 
And when you say value add, what does value add mean to you? Are you buying vacant buildings? Are you looking for below market rents or expiring leases? Or what kind of value add are you looking for? Deep. No, um, actually, that, that you, you kind of hit a lot of it. So we, we first start with looking to see, okay, are there other, is there income in place already currently, right? So a lot of times it could be something where uh, we were buying like a half vacant facility or it's something where, and you also talked about this a little bit, where it comes to expiring leases. Actually, one of the acquisitions we're looking at right now, the market rents on average on a triple net would be about between 10 and $12. These people are paying $2, but the lease is expired this month. And so this is a perfect opportunity for us to come in there, renovate it, get it back into closer to market conditions. I think we already kind of got the, that, that kind of a negotiated out where we're closer to the, the real landing spot now. That's kind of what we look to do is say, okay, if there's an opportunity for us to get it better, because one of the things that happens in a lot of these buildings, especially when there are value adds, is is the lack of, of investment into those properties that really are going to, that hinders the right owners or the right business owners to be part of the, those projects. So what we do is we come in there, we really try to make sure we maximize everything from lighting, from functionality, all these different things, get them in there, and then we can kind of go ahead and get those things leased up more to that 90 for us in the industrial, 97% is really where we, we, we find the sweet spot to be, especially like in the Colorado market. And so we, we really try to focus on that. And then from there, it's just a matter of, is there anything else that we need to, to do? And then in some other situations, it's really about just repositioning it, where it's something where they, it's been not utilized the correct way, we get it right, and then we get the right tenants in there to really explode their businesses as well. So. You just referred to a metric 97%. Is that occupancy in the area? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So a lot of the areas that we focus on, the occupancy for industrial tend to be close to that 93 to 97% in that zone. And that's where, and for what we typically tend to take on is things that we're buying somewhere in that 50 to 75% zone. So we see a lot of opportunity there, a nice little delta. And so that's what we really focus on, on really showing up. So you just mentioned kind of an interesting deal. I'm wondering if you're willing to go deeper into that deal that you just talked about. You had a tenant, market rate is eight to 10 bucks a foot. They're paying two. The likelihood of them agreeing to an 80% increase in rent is pretty small. And so you're pretty much going into that deal knowing you're going to have some vacancy. There's there's risk in having vacancy, but it sounds like you're looking for areas with with low vacancy in the market. So you must you must feel pretty good about being able to lease that space up pretty quickly. Can you walk me through that deal a little bit? What did you like about it, and where are you at with it, and what's the business plan with it? Yeah, for sure. So that deal specifically is it's in the Denver market here. That one, the thing that excited us about it, it, was, it met all the right metrics. It's over 50,000 square feet, close to 60,000. It's one of those situations where it had an op, it's on three, it had about three acres that we actually were able to do fencing yard. And for those that don't know what yard is, that's basically going to be a fenced in area. You got crushed, crushed concrete in the ground and you're going to have semis or, or different storage containers that will be housed there basically in order to have additional storage during that, that period. So that's one of the things that we really liked about it was that good combination of building to yard. And then the other thing that really excited us about it, it was that it was a three tenant. So we could have three tenants in place. Two of them already were in place. We actually did come to find out that based on the fact that we were taking the acquisition of this building, the two tenants that were there wanted to extend their lease in 
their leases. So uh, they wanted to extend by five years, both of them, which was big for us. And then the last component is that tenant that we talked about that was way below market has expressed the fact that they gave us the range that they feel comfortable with. So we have looked into that. But so we're trying to weigh is that fit into the business plan? Because ultimately, we like we said, where our goal is to come in, renovate, and kind of really get the the building, uh, give it a fresh fresh legs or, or new life, actually, breathe new life into this building and this project. And then we're going to turn around and we really want to take the, that 25,000 square foot or so and uh, get that tenanted correctly. And then from there, we really believe that now we can go ahead and execute a nice five to 10 year runway of really stabilized asset right there. So that's what we're really excited about is that we were able to do multiple things, extend leases, but then get the, the last uh, area to market rents. And we think by putting it all together, we have a really, really nice asset. Do you pay any attention to a price per square foot metric? We pay a lot. Actually, it's funny because a lot of people in this space, like, and you know, when you're dealing with a broker, kind of, they're like, oh, cap rate this, cap rate that. We're like, you know, cap rate actually doesn't mean a whole lot to us personally right off the bat. For us, we think about price per pound or price per square foot as the number one metric that we're really looking at, because that really allows us to know where the where the, the project or where we are at basis the what the area might call for and so if we can come in with the right number really got that nice price per square foot and we for example in the area that we're at this is closer to 100 dollars per square foot that we're purchasing it at but where we are actually seeing the market really be at is 140 to 160 a square foot and so when you see that kind of gap in that delta we really think that that's a really good opportunity for us to create value and that's where we really jump on those. So price per square foot is probably the number one metric that we look at. And it sounds like you are looking for, if not newly built class A properties, that they're, they're, I don't know what I would call second generation class A properties, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. I mean, we, we really like to play in that, you know, call it this, you know, somewhere that B to, to A minus zone kind of the, when it comes to some of the, 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 the structures. Below that, we just feel like it's too much of a, of a burden or a lift or a long term before we can really give value to our investors. So we try to avoid those. But it's something where we can kind of get the, the right. We, we like to not be the, the cheapest building. We don't want to be the most expensive. We really like to be in that sweet spot where we're kind of playing in the right part of the neighborhood. So, Angel, I want to ask you about how you view vacancy risk versus having the sure thing of renewing a tenant. So you mentioned that tenant who is at two bucks a foot and it sounds like they would like to stay, but they probably don't want to pay market rate. I I have, you know, a little bit of trepidation when we're talking about vacancy. And, you know, it takes some courage to, you know, to let a, a, a good tenant go, a paying tenant go in the hopes of getting to market rate. So I'll give you a scenario. Let's say this tenant who's paying two bucks a foot, you'd really like to get them to eight to 10 bucks a foot. And they're saying, hey, I can't go up 80% overnight. That's just not realistic. Mm -hmm. But look, we've been here for 10 years. We've never missed a payment. We always pay on time. We'd love to stay and we can get closer to market rate, but it has to be over time. Mm -hmm. You know, we can get up to market rate. Let's say we get up to seven bucks a foot or eight bucks a foot, 
but it's going to take three years to get there. And so we can go incrementally, maybe two to three dollars a foot per year. And so by the third or fourth year of this lease term, Angel, you're going to be closer to market rate. What would you, you know, how do you view that scenario that, that I just laid out for you? That's a that's actually one of the main things that we have to consider when you're looking at this, right? Because you 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 got it right, you got a bird in hand, right? And so to me, that's a really important factor. But it also has to be determined on how does that work out to the business plan and the model that you put together. And so there is a kind of a I call it a delicate dance because you do want to always work with your tenants first, especially as one of the things that's challenging in industrial is that if you have to move equipment or things like that, they're not. It's not usually inexpensive. It's quite frankly the opposite. It's very burdensome to those owners. And so you want to make sure that you're not really wrecking their business or putting them in a position where they cannot excel either. So you do have to understand your tenant. You have to get to know them, understand where their pain points are. In the scenario that you mentioned, I I think that that's a very valid point where you have to determine, okay, can they stomach the influx of that payment right off the bat? Or is it incremental or is it a or is it a X amount up front and then incremental after that? The the one out the, the one that we specifically are talking about, what we're looking at doing there if we do keep these guys, would be to retain them with there is gonna be an incremental bump initially, and then it'll be fifty cents bumps over the next five years. So then that way by the time the five year mark hits, we kinda of come to that happy medium of like, hey, you take you, you let us come and come up to market closer up in the beginning, but we'll give you a longer runway. So that's kind of a, a one of those things that's part of the negotiation part. But I will say that you have to understand your market as well, because one of the things that I also did mention earlier is we tend to see a 93 to 97% occupancy in this market that we're talking about specifically. Well, that also tells us that there are tenants ready to go as well. And so it's kind of one of those things where you're, you're using all the, the data points to really point you in the right direction. Um, in this situation, we're... We're kind of uh, really dancing finally because we are looking at helping these guys. But there is also being told that there is possibly an opportunity for us to have another tenant in there within 60 days. And so we're kind of like, okay, <laughs> we got we to figure this out. And so that's kind of where, where you, you hit the nail on the head that there is definitely a dance that you have to make. Yeah, Angel, I'm not doing deals nearly the size that you're doing. I take, you mentioned the idea of the bird in the hand. I take that idea very seriously because there are... There are other expenses associated with re-tenanting a building. It sounds great to get an 80% bump in rents or whatever the case may be. But what I think people often learn the hard way is you may get that bump in rents, but at the same time, you're going to have some capital expenses to get to get that space ready. Especially if this tenant has been there for, you know, five or 10 or more years, there probably haven't been a lot of updates done to the building. And then you're also going to have leasing fees. So if you're using a broker to find, you know, to find a new tenant for that space, that broker wants to get paid. So you're going to have an expense there. And of course, there's the unknown. So you might think that you can get a new tenant within 60 days and get it leased up with minimal expenses, but there's a chance that maybe it sits for 12 months Mm -hmm. and then you're out significant rent for that time period. And you've also done capital expenses and, and, and it can really, can really have an impact on your, on your business plan. And so th- those are all things that I really try to take into account when I'm trying to lease up a space. You, you, you actually got the right mindset though, because I will tell you when we look at our every deal, that's what we think about, right? We, we think about 
how long is it going to take? Like for us in our model, we usually build out a nine to 12 month lease up period. Even though we know that in our space and in industrial, especially in the markets that we're talking about and in the arteries that we look at, it is really something where we pretty much are at more closer to that three month cycle. So we really wanted to be aggressive. We could underwrite it with the three month in, in, in these markets, but we don't do that. We just, we always feel like at the end of the day, you have to have buffers in place in order to really make sure that you don't set the, the, the plan backwards in any way. So I, I and, and you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, builds are, are build outs are not inexpensive. I mean, there are, I, I actually was thinking about another person that I know that it's in this space. And they're having talk about doing a build out that could require be about a million dollars when it's all said and done. Now it's a bigger project, but to take get on this national tenant for a, a ten year with the two five years after that, he's trying to weigh the factors and understanding: is it worth me putting all this money in capital X, but I do get a ten year lease and then two five year additional runway there? So it's 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 such a delicate dance there. And so I will say back to your point, not that you have got to look at all those factors. If you miss in any one of those, it can have a major impact to your business plan. Angel, I want to talk about the properties that you're purchasing and the properties that you're looking for in terms of amenities or you know desirable characteristics that are going to be attractive to tenants. We talked earlier about outdoor storage that is becoming a very popular thing as, as these properties are just becoming really hard to find. And so talk a little bit, a little bit about what sorts of amenities or characteristics you look for in a property, whether it's the outdoor storage or earlier you talked about lighting or, or dock doors or whatever it may be. What sorts of things do you look for in a property? Well, you gotta, you gotta ask yourself who's actually using these buildings and the functionality of it. I I mentioned that earlier. Functionality actually is extremely crucial in industrial. And so one of the things that you have to make sure that you have is that you have so one of the things from functionality standpoint is the dock doors and ramps, right? Like, do you have accessibility? One of the things that no one thinks about is that if you have a building where semis are coming into, you got to ask yourself, is it a right turn or a left turn? That makes a massive difference for a semi driver when they're trying to come into your property. And so when you're looking at logistics of how the, the property works, you have to think, think about those things. The other thing, too, when you think about the needs, right, clear height becomes a very big factor. I mean, most of the times you're going to find that the most desired clear height is going to be 16 feet and above that. And so when you're looking at buildings and if you see that you're at a 10 to 12 foot clear height, you just became very undesirable in comparison to your competitors. And so that's something you also have to look at when you talk about lighting, right? You're manufacturing things. So we always look at, is there enough insufficient lighting on the, in this project, in this property in order for people to function? And then I will also say the thing that is probably one of the biggest difference in industrial versus some of the other asset classes is power. In order to do the business you need to do, you have got to have enough insufficient power into these buildings. So that's the other thing that you have to look at because of all the machinery and the different things that people are using. And so when you are looking at some of these factors, it's a lot different than if you look like I, I remember when I was thinking about some of the office spaces in the beginning. People are like, where's my carpet? How about my granite? How about this? And I'm like, no, no, no. An industrial is about access. It's about clear height. It's about lighting. It's about power. It's about these other things in order to have function to be able to do the job. 
Angel, I'm looking at much smaller deals than you're doing, more flexed, single-tenant flex-type product. And one of the issues that I'm running into is a lot of the warehouse space I'm looking at. It's often more in the 10 to 20,000 square foot range. A lot of it is not climate controlled. Mm. And so when I'm underwriting these properties, I'm having to account for, I'm guessing a tenant is going to want, at the very least, you know, you're in the Denver area. I'm also in Colorado. We get, you know, sometimes six to eight months of winter here. And I'm wondering if any of the properties you're looking at have warehouse space that's not climate controlled, or if that's ever a consideration that you take in. I think we take that into consideration with our underwriting. I think climate control, especially in certain environments, is massive, right? When you're talking about like Colorado, or I think about Arizona, I mean, some of these things will make it really challenging to be to be efficient and able to do the job at a high level if you don't have the climate control. So I will tell you that I truly believe that that's a factor that you have to take into the underwriting on day one. I also will say, depending on how leases are written, yes, you can pass along those expenses to the tenants, but it's definitely something where you shouldn't just come in expecting that. You should come in with having that underwritten, having it accounted for. Now, if you are able to pass on the tenants, that's great. If not, you at least know that that is something that you are able to have a say, whether one way or the other. But I truly believe that creating a functional and an environment that people can do their jobs at a high level that is very critical in the, in the, in the industrial, industrial flex in those type of things. So it is absolutely something I, I take into consideration. Now, once in a while, you might land in certain areas. I have some friends that do have properties in certain parts of the country that they don't have to deal with as much incremental climate one way or the other. And so it's not as big as a, of a burden for them. But I would always still say, if possible, underwrite it in. The properties that you're looking at in the in this 50 to 150 square foot range, is the warehouse portion, are they typically climate controlled or does it just depend? It really depends. Really, it, it goes back to what the need is for the business. There are some that would be like, I absolutely cannot not have a climate controlled. And there are some businesses that are like, hey, man, we like, for example, one of the ones that jump out of my head is a company that literally they they have a very specific type of packaging that it doesn't that alleviates from having critters and all these different things. So they just fill a warehouse full of storage, full of these things. Well, they don't really care one way or the other because they don't have people in there. It's just stuff. And so it really depends, again, back to the function of what that business is. But it is something you got to take into consideration as you're dealing with individual tenants. Angel, when you're going through the contract process, let's say you've got a deal under contract and you're in due diligence, what are some of your top due diligence items that you look for? And what are some red flags that stand out to you? Well, let's start with environmental. Because <laughs> I will tell you right off the bat, you will be shocked how we actually had a project we were super excited about. And once we started digging into the environmental, we were absolutely not excited about, right? Because one of the things that can happen, and I can tell you very specifically, when you look at environmental and what contaminants or what did happen or didn't happen, it leads you to, you can go to eat quickly from a phase one or a phase two, which is not an inexpensive endeavor. And then when you get that, then you find out, like, for example, one that just jumps out from my head that we looked at earlier this year, we found out that the city essentially that they had had environmental issues for about 20 years. They have had multiple sequences of testing and different things that happened. And then ultimately what happened was if you took on that project, you were not going to be able to secure financing probably for another 10 to 20 years because that's how much left they had 
in order to really kind of mediate some of these, these situations. So environmental to me is kind of one of the, the most critical components. After that, to me, the next thing that I want to make sure is I'm getting my roofs inspected like nobody's business. One of the things you're going to find out when it comes to industrial, the roof is one of the most critical components or expensive components that can come out of nowhere. So I always want to make sure the environmental is done. I get bids on the, some of the CapEx stuff right off the bat. And then, and then from there, it's really about digging into the leases. It's, it's really about understanding the language, understanding who's, in, who's responsible for what. So then that way you understand what kind of expenses you could be walking into. When you're looking at leases, do you ever see leases in the industrial space where there are, you know, deal breaker clauses in there? Anything goofy that stands out to you that would cause you to, to walk away from a deal? You know, I, I would say there are poorly written leases that would make me walk away from a deal. I, I think that one of the things that I, I, I give you an example, most deals when it comes to industrial side are going to be triple nets. That's, that's just kind of the standard in the space. So and, and so for anybody who doesn't understand what triple nets means, it basically means that the, the tenant is responsible for all expenses when it comes to like HVAC, it comes to roof, and it comes to electric, taxes, whatever. They are responsible. Well, one of the things I, I always look at is, is the lease written in a way that makes sense? Well, one of them I, re, I remember looking at, and I was like, wait, this is a gross lease in this area where, and, and the gross lease was like half the market rent, right? So right off the bat, you knew, and it was for seven years. So you knew there was some kind of a sweetheart deal, something that happened. It doesn't even make sense. Why would you have a gross lease in a triple net building? And so when I look at that, like the, the way they're written, the length they're written in, I'm not a huge guy who likes month to month. I think that's very risky for not only your investors, but it's risky for the business plan. So I really, that's one of the things that's a non-negotiable for me. But one of the, I will say, just because they are month to month, does not mean I would say no to the deal. It means I have to go get more information. Like, can we turn these tenants into a normal standardized lease that we are comfortable with? And so that's one of the factors that we look at. Um, and the other thing too, that, that once in a while you'll see something written in there with regards to extensions or rate bumps. Like for one of them that I looked at, they didn't have any escalators for five years. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That doesn't make sense because expenses and, and things all go up over time. And so, when you, and so that's the kind of stuff we look at. Do we have the right escalators? Are they written correctly? Are the terms written right? And then ultimately, what's the, the, the renewals look like as well? Because it could be a problematic tenant and you don't want to keep renewing them. And so it's just kind of one of those deals where you just got to look at all those factors. Great. Great advice. I would, I agree with you that a lot of the leases I look at are so vague and there might be an agreement that, you know, it's a triple net lease, but then you actually look through the lease and it's, it's very ambiguous and, and, and sections are almost unenforceable that they're, that they're so vague. So great tips there. Angel, we're headed towards the tail end of our conversation. I have a few more questions. They're designed to be quicker questions. So feel free to give quick answers if you want to, but also feel free to, to expand if you've got a good story. So what is the best deal that you've ever done? Oh, wow. <laughs> the next one? <laughs> In all reality, for me, it is kind of the next one because I feel like every deal has such a moving moving pieces in there. And they're so exciting to me because no two deals are the same. That's why I love this space is because I love the creativity. I love the collaborative spirit between people. So that's why I would say probably the next one. 
How about either the worst deal you've done or the deal that you've learned a crucial lesson on? Definitely had one of those. I had a deal that we went to the final wire. I mean, I lost, I, I literally lost our my my own money. No investor's money was lost in this deal, but that's why I lost my money because it was one of those deals that we felt we had all the information. And when we got closer to the closing table, we started finding out that they were not providing any, all the information in earnest. They actually had a lot of things that had a lot of discrepancies between what they were providing us and what they were telling us and what we actually uncovered. And so it was one of those situations where when you think about all the time that we spent, attorney's fees, all these different things that we did, we lost our, our earnest money on that one. And that was one of the most painful things was you can make that phone call to your wife and you got to be like, hey, honey, I lost us our money. <laughs> like, like that's not one of the phone calls that I like. But I also said to her, there's no way I'm going to put bad money on bad money. And so I, I, I'd much rather fail fast, which that's what we did. We went ahead and pulled the plug. We lost, we took the hit, but ultimately reminded me that my due diligence way faster at starting at the key component areas. And that's one of the things that I learned is due diligence, do not take your time on it. Day one, when the meter runs, get as much as you can. What's your best tip for finding deals right now? I would say, I would say the best tip I can give you is be relentless. Because right now the deals are, they're out there. You just have to work harder at identifying them. And so it's kind of one of those things that think about it like a card, a deck of cards. As you keep flipping the deals, there's going to be some high cards. And so just keep being relentless with looking at deals. Don't take all the information that's telling you that there are no deals out there. That's not true. What's your top tip for raising capital right now? Raising capital, I think that you're, there's two things that I would tell you is that number one is just making sure that you really are building the real your relationship with your investors on a meaningful level. And the other component is is really be trying to make sure that you're getting you have really good deals that you're working because if you're working good deals and you're working your relationship with the investors, they're easier to align. Yeah, they don't no matter how much they like you, no one wants a bad deal. So it's so true. So true. It's a lot easier to raise capital for a good deal than a mediocre deal. Yes. <laughs> Angel, is there a book, podcast, YouTube channel that you'd recommend that's been helpful to you? You know, it's funny because I've heard so many different ones. And I and I will tell you that for me personally, where it all started, it was I, I really, truly liked Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It uncovered, I know a lot of people in the world, it was their first time you actually heard that someone, especially for myself with humble beginnings, could actually have an opportunity to use real estate to build wealth. And that was one of the things that I prior to that book and, and, and I didn't have people in my life that were in the space. And that's one of the things I would tell you is starting young and, and really learning how to kind of get into it is, is one of the wonderful things I liked about that book. So. And finally, I want to give you the opportunity to share anything that, that you want to discuss that we weren't able to hit on. Is there anything else you want to leave us with? I would, I would actually share with everyone that if you want to, if you're new to commercial real estate or you're currently doing real, commercial real estate, everyone can do the same thing. This is a collaborative space. It's a team sport. And I think a lot of times that what, what one of the things that at least for myself that was a hindrance to getting into the space was the fact that I thought I would have to do it all on my own. Single family, I actually had, did do all of that on my own. I was the one, I remember my first house painting it, doing all the things myself. The cool part about commercial real estate that I'm finding is every day more and more, there are more people wanting to help you, prop you up or give you their tips or whatever that is. And I think that's one of the things that I will challenge everyone is 
If you already have the knowledge, share the knowledge. If you are looking for the knowledge, there are plenty of people that are willing to share that with Finally, Angel, if people hear this and they want to connect with you, where would you like to send people? Yeah, please look us up at KeystonePrivateCapital.com. We, we also have our podcast, Taking a Leap into Commercial Real Estate, out there. And then you can find me pretty much on LinkedIn, Facebook, all those social media platforms. I'm Angel Gonzalez with Keystone Private Capital. Definitely check out Angel's podcast. I've been a listener to that. Tons of great value there. Would highly recommend listeners checking that out. Angel, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Jonathan, it's been an honor and a pleasure, man. Uh, this is awesome. And I, and I tell all you listeners, man, if you get a chance to keep listening to Jonathan, uh, you will enjoy it. So keep it up, man. I love it. <sighs> I appreciate that, Angel. Listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, please reach out to either one of us. Both Angel and I love talking about commercial real estate, and we would love to connect with you. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care. This content is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not financial advice, and it is not an invitation to buy or sell real estate or make any investment decisions. Listeners, before we leave today, I want to remind you to be working on your three-year vision. Go to thesourcecre.com slash vision to get that fillable PDF worksheet so you can dominate the next three years.